In his uh, recent book, it's called The Hi A History of Macroeconomics from uh, Keynes to Lucas and Beyond, uh, Michel Devroy, I think, who's probably the foremost pro uh, macroeconomic historian of thought uh, right now, along with probably Axel Leonard um, we could probably put Leonard in there as well. Um, he presents this history of, uh, his the history of macroeconomic thought as really a tussle between um, two price theoretic traditions, right? And for him, this tussle is between what he calls Marshallian macroeconomics and Walrasian um, uh, macroeconomics is also, as we will see, Lucasian macroeconomics, which is the dominant paradigm um, of today. So the, the Marshallian macroeconomics for him starts with Keynes. He argues that Keynes actually worked with uh, Marshallian sort of price theoretic foundations um, and tried to generalize those and create a general equilibrium theory based off of Marshall's principles. But the other two big players are Clower and Leonard Wood who wrote in the um, 70s uh, and 60s. Um, for Wal the Walras strand, the main sort of giants in that stream would be Hicks with his, of course, his value and capital. I guess you could add Samuelson in there though, I don't know how much Samuelson delved into just purely macro subjects he did, but I don't think that was what he was really famous for. Uh, but also Lucas and Sargent and a lot of others who uh, worked after Lucas, you know, uh, Kittle and Prescott, the real business cycle theorists, um, et cetera. Um, now, the key differentiating factor that DeVroy points to is basically, he says, look, um, it's all about equilibrium and uh, how it's used and whether or not you can allow for false or disequilibrium trading, right? In the basic price theoretic construct that you then sort of build off to account for uh, these ma typical macroeconomic phenomena such as growth, business cycles, um, everything to do with money and capital um, and all the other stuff. And uh, he, according to him in the Marshallian tradition, uh, basically you, um, you, can, you have what he calls temporary equilibrium for a market day, um, you know, Marshall's corn or fish market, uh, but that goes hand in hand with a short or long period disequilibrium. Um, in other words, you know, production is not completely sort of uh, has been adjusted to uh, the prevailing demand. Um, and on the other hand, in the Walrasian tradition, you have completely no possibility of any sort of uh, disequilibrium uh, prices emerging, disequilibrium, um, exchanges happening. It's equilibrium always, all the time. And of course, um, that's a big part of um, Lucas's work um, as well. So, now of course, Devroy himself doesn't mention um, the Austrian or anything to do with Menger. He does mention, a, uh, he just talked br very briefly about how this was the dominant paradigm before Keynes, um, though I don't know. Uh, he just mentions it in a paragraph and leaves it at that. Um, and he, but he also doesn't sort of uh, do things, uh, do what some other uh, historians of thought do, um, or even other economists do, which is basically subsume it within the Walrasian tradition and say, well, this is just, uh, gen you know, general equilibrium theory, but in verbal uh, terms, and nothing much to see here. Uh, so the question that basically I've broadly been working on um, is, well, is there such a distinct, coherent price theoretic? price theoretic tradition, and if so, what implications um, has it had um, and will it have uh, for macroeconomics um, or what you would, I guess, in the 30s, what was called economic dynamics, right, which is everything to do with money and capital. Um, 
Now, of course, some of this work has already been done by uh, Dr. Salerno. Uh, he has, I think, 1991 paper about the place of coordination, the role of coordination in Austrian macro, um, and other papers, also his, uh, his analysis of the place of human action in the history of thought. Dr. Garrison has also done um, a lot of work in this field, of course, uh, differentiating Austrian macro from Keynesian, as well as, uh, uh, you know, Walrasian or Lucasian um, uh, macro. Um, but I still think there's more that we can do uh, with a price theoretic focus. Uh, a lot of uh, Dr. Garrison's work focuses on capital structure, capital theory, um, less so on the specific role um, of equilibrium. Um, and in this talk, my focus will really be more on looking at Mises and looking at the Austrian foundations itself, not so much differentiating as sort of trying to uh, spell out exactly what is this, uh, what is the distinctiveness of this tradition and how it can explain it. And I think, and this is, you know, the core thesis is basically that the distinctiveness of the Mengerian tradition is the ability to actually explain realized prices. That is to actually have a theory of prices uh, that occur day to day in the real world, which we would call disequilibrium prices, not just allowing for such trades and then saying, well, the market adjusts somehow to a state of equilibrium, um, which is sort of what happens in the Marshallian um, tradition. Um, and of course, in the Walrasian tradition, this is not uh, even considered, uh, but as, as basically allowing for this, explaining it, but also creating a sort of, uh, uh, a process, a market process that involves a succession of realization of such prices. Uh, now, really, we could sum, sum it up, I think, in broadly two quotations that I've pulled out here from Mises's notes and recollections. So the first quotation, um, he says, look, what distinguishes the Austrian school and will lend it immortal fame um, is precisely the fact I love Mises' adjectives, by the way. It's precisely the fact that it created a theory of economic action and not of economic equilibrium or non-action. The Austrian school endeavors to explain prices that are really paid in the market and not just prices that would be paid under certain never realizable conditions. That's sort of the first part of it. The second part of it, I think, is spelled out here. He says, look, and here he's talking about his theory of money and credit. And he says, in, on all its pages, I use what he calls the step-by-step -step method. Uh, it is the only permissible method which renders superfluous the argument between short-run and long-run economics. Um, it also makes the distinction between statics and dynamics an idle question. Later, he says, look, the step-by-step -step method must consider the lapse of time. In such an analysis, the time lag between cause and effect becomes a multitude of time differences between single successive consequences. And a reflection on these time lags then leads to a precise theory of the social consequences of changes in the purchasing power of money. So really, it's about firstly developing a theory of realized prices and then developing a theory of how you know, these prices link a, a, a sort of a step-by-step -step method whereby you, know, you can have a, a coherent story of uh, essentially of analyzing change. Um, and um, that's, that's really what I want to dig into. Uh, now, of course, this is uh, Rothbard's, uh, uh, you can start with the simplest sort of uh, barter economy. Uh, this is from Rothbard's chapter two um, in Man, Economy, and State. You know, you have horses being traded against fish. Um, and in this simple, very simple uh, barter uh, scenario where you just have two goods, uh, these are what you could call the ultimate conditions or the data that govern um, um, exchange. You know, you have sort of the, 
people evaluating the marginal utility of horses versus um, fish. You have more capable, less capable buyers, sellers, all of that um, good stuff. Um, now, the main point, and I think one of the crucial points in all of this is, uh, you know, the whole point of appraisement, which is basically that all of that, the, the, this, what, you know, spelled out, this is how Rothbard starts his treatment, but it's also how Bumbavok starts his treatment in, uh, in uh, the positive theory, where you sort of spell out the ultimate sort of conditions governing a certain market at a particular point in time. Um, all of that is really uh, not what the actor is appraising. Right. Um, so really, first of all, all our you know value judgments are based on appraisement when we trade. Uh, but also that uh, you know the, the appraisement is about what people will do at a particular time um, in the future. In fact, nobody, neither the people in the market. I mean, you, the individuals themselves don't know really what these ultimate conditions are. Uh, they don't know exactly what is the highest that they're really willing to pay, and no seller knows exactly what is the you know minimum price, lowest that he's willing to go, uh, right? Um, and the economist doesn't know these this this information as well. Um, all we can tell is that this this exists because of scarcity, right? You have at some point you know uh, this exists, but really what 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 the on a, on any given market what people are appraising and the appraisements on the basis of which they base their actions are really just what they expect people to do right they're not really trying to evaluate this 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 sort of um ultimate information or conditions what they are interested in um and and sort of Again, Mises goes into this briefly. He says, look, what impels a man towards change and innovation is not the vision of equilibrium prices, uh, but the anticipation of the height of the prices of a limited number of articles as they will prevail on the market on the date at which he plans to sell. No actor has anything to do with equilibrium and equilibrium prices. Um, these notions are foreign to real life and action. So um, in other words, uh, at a given point in time, you decide that, you know, if, if you're confronting somebody and you know, they're offering, making you an offer to say, uh, to sell you a good at a certain price, right? You make a decision based on just what you think, you know, other options are out there, right? Uh, you're not sitting there trying to reconstruct the underlying demand and supply schedules, calculate the equilibrium price, and then say, well, okay, um, I think this is, you know, either too high or this is the correct price um, or this is too low. I mean, e constructs of equilibrium, et cetera, are more what, um, economists use um, and not what uh, the underlying actors um, themselves use. But nevertheless, we can think about sort of two kinds of prices, right? Mises goes into this in Human Action. He says, look, there are some prices that establish a final state of rest. Um, so going back to um, this example here, there is a sort of zone of prices between 89 and 90, right? Um, where you will sort of, where, where if exchange happens, then all the possible reverse valuations that are contained in this original conditions that govern the state of the market will be exhausted, right? So if, if, if for example, somehow, and we don't know how, um, everybody in the market zeroes in on that price as what they appraise it to be, right? So buyers think, okay, this is the price lowest price at which I can buy. Sellers think 89 is the highest price at which I can sell. And they all base their actions in the market, right, uh, based on this uh, appraisement of an expected price as being this, this price that will 
exhaust all reverse valuations, well then if trade does occur at that price, then you know, trade will end. And given these conditions, there's no more room for any more action on the part of buyers um, or sellers, right? Um, now, of course, again, we're not really saying here that, that you know, one way of saying it would be to say, well, yes, uh, you know, buyers and sellers reconstruct the underlying demand and supply schedules and they say, oh, this is where the two schedules intersect. Well, well that's not what's happening. It's really almost like for it to happen, somehow people would have to right, zero in on the price because it's not just about what, what, what we're really appraising is not just, it's not the underlying sort of ultimate information. You're really just appraising what someone else is gonna do at a particular point of time in the future. So even if you knew had some of this knowledge, you might not know how they'll act on the basis of that knowledge, right? So it has to sort of, uh, that's why Mises, whenever he talks about the emergence of a final state of rest, he always uses the, uh, uh, the he always says, well, someone will have to come and whisper it in your ear. You know, he in human actions, like three or four times, um, in the case with changes in the money supply, but also in other places, he says, you'd have to know how people would, you know, act in the future. Right, basically, that, that's what you'd, you'd, you'd have to know, and somehow, magically. Well, well, but you, basically, you can also have a, um, you know, uh, in, in more complicated conditions where we, we, if you leave the, you know, too good simple barter case, but you actually have money, for example, that enters the picture. Um, so you actually have more than one good and people are trading against money. Or if you're talking about uh, uh, an economy with production, so you have a higher order good being traded against money. The ultimate conditions of governing you know, trade in a particular market are themselves based on appraised, appraisements of other prices, right? So there is no way you can form your marginal utility, right? You can't form, uh, evaluate money without anticipating prices of goods and services that you will buy, other goods and services that you'll buy with it. Um, you can't, uh, the entrepreneur can't know how much the maximum buying price for uh, a factor of production without anticipating the price of the product in the market in which he plans to sell. So those, all, those, those sort of underlying conditions that govern trade um, in you know, markets once we allow for the use of money um, and in, in both consumer and higher order goods are themselves going to involve appraisement, but of things that people will do or actions that people will take in other markets, right? Um, and so basically what, so if we assume, you know, if we're talking about um, an economy with multiple goods, including uh, higher order goods, and you have production um, there, if you assume that all prices are these final state of rest prices in every market, right? what we're really saying is that each participant enters the market with an initial bundle and then exits the market with his optimal bundle, right? And, he, and, and since everybody is going to trade not just in one market, but in multiple markets, right? So if you're a consumer, you have income, you're gonna spend it on multiple consumer goods. If you're a, a producer, you're gonna buy factors of production, then go sell um, your product and then use the money to buy consumer. So you, you're gonna trade in, you have a path that you traverse, right? You, you go from market to market. You don't just trade in one market. Uh, if every price is the final state of rest price in every market, then what you're really saying is, look, each participant sort of traverses a path um, and they engage in multiple transformations through the path, but on every, every step that they take is correct. In other words, every step that they take is based on a correct appraisement 
of prices that will prevail in other markets and they will, in other words, they take every step in every market, every exchange, every transformation they undertake is based on a correct assessment of what other people will do, right? Whether it be in that same market or in other markets. Um, and of course, once, if you're assuming that, um, then you don't really need to, you can assume away the intervening steps, right? And this is usually how um, uh, this, this whole problem is treated in sort of standard, uh, you know, Walras-inspired sort of optimization of consumers, producers. It's, you move from an initial bundle into your optimal bundle. All the steps in between, we don't need to worry about, right? You start your trading process in one market, you exit the market after having traded in multiple markets at the end of this process, and we just look at the beginning and the end, right? And all the steps in between are really uh, of no importance because we've assumed the importance of that away, right? Since if you're going to take each step and each step is just assumed to be right, um, then what's the big deal, right? You can just look about, talk about the beginning and the end um, and really assume, you're basically assuming that, you know, everybody is sort of making these correct decisions at every um, point in time. Now, most importantly, what that means is that any sort of, because you're not analyzing each step that every individual takes as he trades um, in the market, uh, you're completely ignoring any the influence of any changes brought about by prior acts of exchange, right? So you basically look at the beginning and the end, um, and you don't ever consider the fact that, you know, you're not analyzing each step in the process, so you what you did in the previous market is not sort of of great importance to what you do now, right? Or what you did in the past in a particular market is not of importance to what you do now. Right, you just you start trading with a certain initial endowment. You end it by hitting your you know you know you calculate your optimal bundle right using uh, and and then you reach you know exactly what trades you have to make in every market. You do that. You know what prices are going to prevail, and you reach the end, and that's it. Right, um, and so it, importantly, when you do that, then you sort of any sort of changes that occur on the, along each step that market participants take from mark, as they trade from one market to the other sort of fall away. You don't really need to think about it. You don't need to really uh, bother with it. Now, of course, Mises talks about a different um, state of rest, which is what he calls a plain state of rest. So in other words, uh, some prices will establish a plain state of rest and not a final state of rest. And that what that means is basically that at those prices, you will still all reverse valuations will be exploited given the prevailing momentary valuations, but once trade is finished, you will still have more room to trade. So in other words, if you go all the way back to that initial simple case there, right? If you had a price say above the zone of 89 to 90 or below, right? And for some reason, let's assume that everybody just thought that that would be the, uh, the highest, so, you know, everybody sort of formulated or decided on acting based on an assessment that that would be the price that is going to prevail. Well, as long as people believe that, so you know, sellers, for example, um, if you talk about, you know, if you're going to, if it's a price say above the this this price that will produce the final state of rest, they might quote those prices and believe that that they will, you know, be able to sell their entire stock at that price uh, because that's what they expect. But of course, that's not going to happen given the underlying conditions. Right, so at the end of that process, even though 
everybody has exhausted their reverse valuations based on just those va their momentary preferences, you'll still have more, you know, you will still have some unexploited gains from trade that will exist given the sort of underlying uh, preferences. Um, now, of course, those, those will change because when you trade, then you change your endowments and when you change your endowments, you'll have new uh, sort of uh, preferences. But uh, used, basically the point is that you will have prices which momentarily produce a state of rest, but which will leave more room um, for um, exchange. Um, and most interestingly, um, you will also have uh, cases where um, you will have you might exhaust all reverse valuations within a market, but they'll be based on incorrect appraisements of prices of goods in other markets, right? So it's, you can think of say an entrepreneur or entrepreneurs who have, who make certain appraisements of what the prices of products will be in markets in which they are going to sell in. And, you know, they have their preferences, their uh, maximum buying prices for higher order goods based on that. Um, and based on those preferences and given the preferences of sellers, you have a complete exhaustion of all possible uh, trading opportunities. But nevertheless, um, those entrepreneurs would have probably forecast or made these decisions in the, in the market of this higher order good based on an incorrect estimation of the prices of their products. Right, so uh, you can, and this, uh, you know, William Hutt calls this um, sort of price what he calls a market clearing price. Basically, within each market, everyone is making is not is making the right decision. So there's nobody uh, sort of, you know, there's there's nobody who uh, refuses to sell, thinking that he can get a higher price, and then that that doesn't happen, or there's no one who refuses uh, an offer to purchase thinking that he could get a lower price somewhere else and that doesn't happen. So these sort of mistakes aren't made within a market, but nevertheless, you, it could be based on, uh, you know, incorrect appraisements of prices of other goods, right? Where, when you will enter other markets. Um, I believe this also corresponds to what Dr. Salerno calls a Wikstedian state um, of rest, where you basically have an exhaustion of reverse valuations within a particular market, but where uh, they might be based on incorrect estimations of prices of other goods in other markets. Um, so basically, in, in the real world of uncertainty, of course, realized prices are going to be um, plain, are going to generate plain states of rest and not final states of rest in one or the two senses we just, that I just mentioned. Um, so you know, either people are going to make mistakes about, uh, are going to make trades based on mistaken appraisements of the prices of that good itself or prices of other goods that they will uh, hope to trade in other markets. Um, but of course, that means then that we, a new sort of, a new sort of possibility enters the picture. Um, and this, of course, is exactly what the Austrian price theory or Mengerian price theory focuses on, um, on explaining these plain uh, states of rest or prices that generate um, these plain um, States of rest, and in fact, I think it, I think it goes back all the way uh, to Bumbawark because if you think about it, his the initial conditions in that market involved money, um, or uh, you know, other older Austrians spoke about the subjective exchange value of of goods that are held, you know, uh, in in a, of a particular good, um, and that could possibly be based on an incorrect appraisement of uh, 
you know, prices of other goods, uh, Bumbavak's treatment of uh, factor markets involves clearly an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs having incorrect appraisements of um, prices of products. Nevertheless, you know, you exhaust all gains from trade in that market given those valuations at that moment, but that leaves room for further exchange um, in the future once those expectations or appraisements of the prices of other goods um, change. Um, and what that means is, of course, then you have to, you can't just you can't just blank out the movement from your initial bundle with which you enter the market economy, and you know you can't just say, well, people instantaneously transform their initial bundle into this optimal bundle, but by taking all the right steps in every market in which they participate in, right? You can't do that because if you're allowing for these mistakes to be made, and if you're allowing for a continuous source of you know, possible action that just results from errors made in the past, right? You're introducing basically what you can call an endogenous source of, of change, right? Not just changes that impinge from outside the exchange process, but it changes that impinge from within the exchange process itself, largely because when you trade, you're gonna change your, the, the endowments of goods um, that you have. So as you move from market to market, you're going to be in a different state um, as you enter each market. But uh, in the Austrian or the Mangarian story, you focus on each step, right? The focus is on analyzing the determination of the price of a good given certain valuations at that moment. And that's one step in this process, right? So each, all of our, I mean, essentially everybody is trying to hit, is trying to exhaust all possible, you know, gains that you could have from trading in any market, right? And then exit the marketplace, right? That's, that's, that's what the ultimate goal of all exchange is. We all try, you know, if you think about an entrepreneur, he's trying basically to earn the maximum profit that he can and then take that money and then, you know, buy consumer goods with it and then exit, right? Uh, but the fact is that uh, if, you, if you make mistakes along the way, then the past becomes important in analyzing a given moment. So you have an endogenous source of changes in price. Um, and of course, this is precisely the equilibration process in the Austrian story because you focus on a step or on a, a particular market and what actors do in that market given these, whatever their appraisements might be of prices either of the good within this market or other markets, right? That's your focus, right? Then what you're really saying is this, you cannot ignore the fact that the process by which you equilibrate or move towards equilibrium itself is a step-by-step -step process which is going to involve endogenous changes coming from prior acts of trade. Now, this is what you would call, this is what you, it's usually referred to as the path dependency effect, right? Um, and many people criticize um, Walras saying that, look, you didn't take this into account, that, well, if you allow for trading at what you would call disequilibrium prices, which are what plain state of risk prices are, that itself changes your final sort of equilibrium um, position. Uh, so basically each step leads to a reshuffling um, of this, the distribution of goods, um, and therefore each step itself will generate changes which are relevant when people enter um, and participate in subsequent um, exchange. Now, Mises sort of, you know, in human action, actually this comes in in the section where he's criticizing the possibility of using um, uh, 
the general equilibrium or the system of differential equations as he calls it uh, to uh, as an aid to calculate for the socialist czar um, he says look um, the absence of further changes in the data which is the condition required for the establishment of equilibrium refers only to such changes as could derange the adjustment of conditions to the operation of those elements which are already operating today. Um, the system cannot attain the state of equilibrium if new elements penetrating from without diverted from those movements which tend towards the establishment of equilibrium. But as long as the equilibrium is not yet attained, the system is in a continuous movement which changes um, the data, the tendency towards the establishment of equilibrium not interrupted by the emergence of any changes in the data coming from without is itself a succession of changes in the data. What he's really saying is that, look, if you're trading at these plain state of rest prices, right, which leave further scope for action, whether in this market or in other markets that you would uh, trade in, right, what that means is basically what that, that's going to involve changes in your your possessions, right? So as you move from market to market, right? Or even within the same market, if you trade later, you're not going to be in the same position as before. And even if you assume that the sort of your, your basically see your scale of wants with respect to, um, you know, consumer goods stays the same, you're still gonna have differing maximum buying and minimum selling prices, right? Which is implied by this endogenous source of change that kicks in just when you're moving towards equilibrium um, itself. Well. What does all of this have? What does all of this have to do with Austrian macro specifically? Well, I want to take uh, the case of um, you know Mises's famous uh, you know his analysis of the monetary adjustment process um, and argue that really it's nothing but uh, an application of of what I've been talking about. So in other words, uh, you know, Mises, what what Mises is doing is sort of taking or essentially refining or developing uh, this treatment of prices that already sort of exists within the Mingarian or Austrian tradition, um, and then applying it to analyze um, changes in um, the, the money supply. Well, one important point that, uh, and, and I think he, it, he makes this in this point in human action in, you know, where he's talking about the different, um, he's talking about the evenly rotating economy and the final state of rest, the different thought constructs that uh, we use to analyze prices. Um, he says that, that basically what, you have, what you're dealing with is the fact that any change itself is a succession of steps, right? So any change that, ex that comes in from, with, from outside the system is itself going to result in a succession of changes as people adjust in different markets, right, um, to uh, the, the change that's coming from the outside. Um, and so in other words, what, so if you think about the standard story of, you know, when money supply goes up, it goes into the hands of a few people, right? Uh, now, of course, in all of this, there is also Mises' regression theorem that you have to incorporate, which I, I, I'm not going to get into, which is basically that because, uh, you know, the you can only appraise money based on its future, you know, purchasing power, but you can only do that if you look to the past. Uh, so basically, people are going to base their expectations. Once you introduce money, then you necessarily are anchoring your expectations of prices in sort of the past, um, necessarily. Uh, but it, the basic story is, look, some people get that initial money supply, right? Uh, those people are the luck, are essentially are lucky because you know they can spend it when the prices of the goods that they wish to buy haven't risen. Uh, the sellers of you know those that initial that so that's the first step, right? Then certain the sellers of those goods benefit because they get that increase uh, you know in their 
um, incomes, they then can, are still in a position of advantage because the price of the goods that they wish to buy haven't yet risen, et cetera. So everybody who receives this influx of cash before the prices that they wish to purchase of the goods that they wish to purchase haven't yet gone up are gained from this process, while those um, that are in the unfortunate position and they see the prices of the goods that they wish to buy rise before the price of the goods that they can sell uh, go up, while well, they're basically are the ones who are the losers in this process. And through this you know, step-by-step -step process, you basically have the economy moving to a new position um, of equilibrium, which involves a new um, distribution of wealth and a different set of um, relative prices. Well, if you think about it, what Mises is really saying is, is basically applying this step-by-step process right of change because each individual is basically when he's getting the money right he's going to he's thrown off the the path that he was taking before right um, he's going to do something different that involves his possessions changing in a way that is different uh, from before he had the influx um, of money so basically the the transformations that they that that individual will engage in as he moves from market to market are going to be different because of the influx of money as compared um, to otherwise, right? Um, and essentially, it's because of the fact that you have this theory of of realized disequilibrium prices and how you know the and the connection between markets based on that that you can then build that theory of the monetary adjustment process based on this, right? And but if you compare this to the standard uh, treatment of of, of changes in the money supply, for example, uh, which is uh, Prevalent, of course, um, um, you know, in 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 a lot of the work of Lucas that Lucas did in um, the you know the 70s, um, money must be neutral, right? In other words, money must affect theoretically, money must affect prices, um, all prices um, at the same time. Well, in, in, to a large extent, that's because you're assuming that you're always you know all prices are these final state of rest prices, right? So you can just you can assume away all the steps that are needed to move from your initial bundle, right, as you move from um, market to market. Um, and so you can just, if, if the individuals know, for example, that this increase in money supply has occurred, then of course they can just adjust um, all uh, the, the nominal prices, uh, you know, by in, in the exact proportion in which that increase happened, and it doesn't affect any of the real variables um, in the system. I, I think it's that the that conclusion comes from um, the basic fact that you never allow for uh, trading in a disequilibrium prices to emerge, um, and basically you don't you therefore eliminate this process by which money can change hand step by step, and you never you never have the space or the room to analyze uh, the determination of a particular price at a particular point in time um, as that money ripples through the system. So that that rippling is just eliminated it's gone and of course in the in the lucas story the only way you can have or the or the theory the one of the popular um, you know theories in that tradition of, to explain business cycles is you know deals with the signal extraction problem um, that well you, you, if you think that the change is not with respect to money supply but something else then you would adjust your actions um, or your plans in a different way and that will affect the real variables in the system so it's only because of the sort of uh, lack of information um, that you have the business cycle, money is theoretically neutral, but at the same time, an increase in the money supply can have um, short-term uh, can lead to short-term fluctuations in output because people confuse that increase in money supply with something else. But the, 
that doesn't mean that you all of a sudden incorporate the step-by-step -step, um, approach. It's just that, you, so in other words, you cannot have any endogenous changes that affect the determination of a price at a particular point in time, right? All changes have to come in exogenously. Um, and essentially, they, they, they have their impact instantaneously, right? Um, and I think that follows, in a sense, from the equilibrium-only um, assumption. Oh, well, I can just stop here, and we have about five minutes for questions and comments, or if any. Thank you. Can you go back to the very simple example then there can only be one, even if they don't know what that equilibrium price would be at the start of the process. Right, sure. The bidding process will come down to 89. Right, 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 right. That's, so that's the plain state of rest. Well, that's one way it can take Right, it. right, right. No, no. I, I, the other horse markets, right. you don't know. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but just for the rest of the, so. Right. Whereas Marshall, the, 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 the Marshall, Marshallian, equilibrium is that these people don't aren't completely in communication with one another they're making trades at different prices but eventually yeah he has the constant explains this right there are points that are rest prices but during a market day but over the course of time people don't know everything about right the fruit market, right. right well i was implicitly i guess i guess i was implicitly dealing with unorganized Exchange implicitly, but I, yeah, I, and I think even Bumbarak makes the same point. He has a footnote where he says, "Look, you know, this market that we're talking about, it could be other participants trading horses in other places, yes, yes. and and so you know, obviously, then we wouldn't have this single price for horses, I mean, something to that effect." But, but all those prices, even where, where people don't know about the other horse market, right, they would right. only be equilibrium price in the sense that given those valuations, right? Right. Right, so given those, yep, yeah. yep. But, but anyway, my point with Robert, so when he draws a supply and demand curves, he doesn't, he says sometimes, well, then you can, the price will quickly tend towards equilibrium. Right. No, the Mises says any non-equilibrium price is self-liquidating in a given market. It can't exist. Right. It's self-liquidating. There's only one price. It only, Mises says it happens again and again in um, the stock market. Now, right, right, right. That, that that price comes about, that's the place data rest. Right. That doesn't mean it's, it's correct. It's not right, right. Right, 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 right. Okay. So, yeah, I guess I guess it'll depend to some extent on the kind of market we're dealing with. And the assumptions that you make at the beginning. Right, right. Stock, yes. The, uh, I mean, any sort of stock market or any sort of auction yeah, based, auction which is, right, would. Right, I mean, and I think Rothbard also goes into, when he talks about the valuations here, he's talking about how these valuations could be subjective, so you know they could reflect subjective exchange value. So he said he introduces that later, I think, yeah. which would also sort of imply, you know, that that's another reason why this wouldn't be a sort of equilibrium price, which is basically your, you know, you could be holding on to your valuations of fish might reflect what might be based on what you think the price of a cow is, 
right, in terms of fish, and that could be wrong, which would be, you know, which I think all the older Austrians dealt with it. I think in Wieser and, 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 and Menger and Bumbawag, they allowed for that, which itself to me shows that it's not, you know, you're not talking about a, you know, it's not all the information in the, or in other words, this is not the complete and total data in the economy. Right. They said, well, you know, there are other non-economic factors that affect the He says, no. Given the, the knowledge they have, right. and that in fact it's limited, that is the price that's going to be, you know, how where the price is going to be determined. Right. Can I ask you something? So are you saying when Robert you that yeah. The intersection was not the plane state of rest, that must have been something else. In he, it, 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 it's not, in the beginning, it's kind of, it is the plane state of rest, he just talks about it. But then later on, he starts to say, well, the market will, will, will quickly tend to clear because of shortages or, or surpluses. So, and Peter Klein notices too. So he sort of starts slipping into the Marshallian, you know, in the fish market. Where in the beginning people don't know the exact price of fish. Some people buy it at prices that ultimately too high. By the end of the day, they sort of find the right price. Right? Or does he? he uh, that, that's the book you learn micro, microeconomics from. It's all marked up. I mean, he, he had it in graduate school and undergraduate. So he, he, he slips into that, um, but not not in the chapter we first introduced it. And of course, Marshall assumes away the the. The path dependency of it yeah. because of that constancy of the marginal utility of money. So, you know, if your marginal utility of money stays the same, whatever stock of it you have, it's sort of, you assume that away. And, but DeVroy and others basically say that Marshall also has the perfect information assumption. That he does have it. Yeah, that he does have it. And that, that all the other, you know, all the higgling, haggling, all that is all basically BS. <laughs> yeah. He just throws it in there to add a little realism, but actually he is assuming perfect knowledge, which, Right, and exactly the, the point is is this right, right? But the but the point I think yeah. the the core point is look is this the whole data of the right. economy? It's and and you know this it's it's I think it's important you bring brought it up because in Menger as well, if you view his, if you look at his price model, he's not he doesn't seem clear about that either. In, in other words, um, you know when he's talking about. The, the horse, his, his, yeah. his example, he, he again, he just draws out these valuations of these two goods, but the question is, is that the, are you assuming that is just, you know, like the typical assumption would be it's a two good world, these are the only people in the economy? Well, he actually, okay, he's good on that because- Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah, he doesn't, he says these are the values of the moment, and, and, and then in a paragraph describing, he says, um, you can actually see, says, this happens, Every day or at every moment, that you can see, he calls them. You think, uh, moments, yeah, no, moments of rest, I think, of rest. points of rest, yeah. Points, you can actually see points of So if you stand outside of Walmart right. and you see people coming out with their carriages, they've all played, paid, funny say, right, right. rest prices. Right, right. But they've exhausted all gains from exchange. In that moment, right. Right. So they could have been, you could have gone to Target and gotten the other, right. the same thing cheaper. Right. So, so Menger. Realizes that. I mean, he doesn't go into the. There was no Walmart back then. But Menger. No, Menger says. I'm just rereading him today. Right. It, it, it's, it's really good. I, but I don't think that's in his price theory 
chapter, I think it's the one before. Maybe it's not. It's the exchange one, yeah, I think. Yeah, but I guess, yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the basic question is if this is not the, the data that describes the whole economy, then he's just talking about a phase in a process. Yeah, phase in a process. Right? Yes, right? And that's the point, that this is like Austrian price theory focuses on a, on a certain moment, right. like it's almost like a snapshot of a process. Right? Exactly. right? And, and that's what allows us to, for example, in, when you bring in the monetary aspect, build the step-by-step -step approach to the changes in purchasing power. Anyone else? Oh, okay, time up. I know he's kind of only sometimes considered like quasi-Austrian as uh, Schumpeter, and I know he had a lot of praise for uh, Walrus, and I'm just kind of wondering what was what was his take because it seems like it seems like he was kind of aware of like a dynamic, more dynamic economy. But. Yeah, you know, I think Schumpeter, but I think Schumpeter's, I don't think. His case is also changed from the outside. You know, um, yeah. I, I think I think the entrepreneur basically disrupts an existing general equilibrium, sort of, sort of, you know, not exactly in those words, but sort of like that. Um, uh, and of course, I don't think, and I'm, and, I, I, and, I'm, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but I'm pretty sure that uh, he didn't really look to Menger and Bumbauer for his price theoretic core of his overall framework. I think to that he looked to Walras. Um, at least I've read his history of thought and he basically says Walras, like once Walras wrote and he wrote everything sort of. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.